Welcome to Bar Fights with attorney and advocate Sarah Klein. Taking on issues that matter and advocating for legal, cultural, and political change everywhere in order to protect children and vulnerable adults. Joining the conversation are survivors, advocates, lawyers, media personalities, athletes, celebrities, authors, wellness aficionados, and many more. Because bringing real justice takes a team of experts who care. Now, leading the fight is your host, Sarah Klein. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Bar Fights. This is your host, Sarah Klein, and you guys, I am so pumped about how this podcast is going. We are on episode eight now, and this to me was a project about jumping into the deep end of the pool, having no idea how to do this, having never done it before. And I have to say, it has been such an amazing thing to connect with all of you, not just in writing through social media, but to be able to talk to you so that you can hear not just my voice, but you can hear these really, really special voices of people that have faced some adversity or who have some wisdom to share with us that will inform us and inspire us. And when I dreamt up this show, those were the two words that I really focused on. I want to leave you guys informed in a way that maybe you weren't before you listened to the episode. And I want to inspire you, right? There's so much going on in the world right now that's heavy, that's a negative. I want to tackle tough subjects, but I want to lift each other up. And, you know, I've made the promise on this show before that it's not just a sexual abuse show. We're not just going to be talking to survivors of sexual abuse. We talked to Katherine Schwarzenegger Pratt on the topic of forgiveness. We talked to Olympic mental skills coach, Dr. Colleen Hacker, who was just on fire in terms of inspiration. But There are so many stories of sexual abuse that have themes, themes of courage, themes of facing difficult, you know, powerful entities, bad guys, whatever it is, facing adversity and figuring out in the face of probably a lot of fear, probably a lot of the unknown, how to come out the other side of that. And so maybe you've never been sexually abused. Maybe you don't know a lot about the topic. We're going to educate you about it, but we're also going to zoom out a little bit on this show and we're going to tie it back to these themes that are applicable in all of your own lives. And today I have a huge treat for you. I am so happy that this person said yes um, to doing my show. He is so cool. I've been a little bit of a cyber stalker when (laughs) when it comes to him and his story. He's been so inspirational to me. I want to introduce you to him. And you guys, you're just really, really lucky to be able to hear from this person today. Rabbi Avremi Zippel is an ordained and practicing rabbi. He was raised in Salt Lake City. 
He attended rabbinical school and then he returned to his community with his wife um, to to serve his community. And in February of 2019, which you guys, it's not that long ago, we're talking like a little over two years ago, he testified publicly about the 10 years of childhood sexual abuse that he suffered at the hands of his nanny. And what's cool about him, you know, I have this sort of title I never asked for, first known victim of Larry Nassar, right? He is believed to be the first Orthodox rabbi to publicly speak out about sexual abuse. I get the chills when I say that because it's like, talk about feel the fear and do it anyway. What a decision that must have been. And we're going to get into that a little bit today. But since then, Avrami has become this well-known advocate for survivors of sexual abuse on a really large scale. He is um, the crime victim representative on the Utah Council for Victims of Crimes, which is a legislative appointed committee. And to do all that in two years, I mean, he just came forward two years ago and he's already paying it forward and speaking out and using his voice in order to help keep children safe. And probably, and and we can ask him about this, to be able to demonstrate that this can truly happen to anyone. It doesn't have a certain gender. It doesn't have a certain race. It doesn't have a certain religion. It can happen to anyone. Sexual abuse and child sex abuse does not discriminate. Um, So Rabbi, (laughs) welcome to Bar Fights. I'm so happy to see your face. Thanks, Sarah. Well, thanks for the very kind introduction. I think there's a lot of mutual respect in terms of, you know, the uh, the inspiring work that you do and the advocacy space that you've created for so many of us. And it really, really is a treat to be here with you for this morning. So thanks a lot. Yay. Okay, cool. So give our listeners the sort of bullet pointed pieces of your story. We don't need to go back into it and relive the whole thing, but bullet points, because I want to really focus on that moment of jumping off, you know, the cliff, hoping you could fly and then sort of the aftermath of coming forward. So give our listeners just an overview of your story. Sure. So I was raised here in Salt Lake City. Uh, One of the kind of interesting realities of growing up in a observant household as I did in Salt Lake City is there was no Jewish day school um, back in the 90s when I was growing up here as a kid. And so my siblings and I were homeschooled Nowadays, as we're still in the middle of COVID, we like to joke that we did the cool thing before everyone else figured out it was cool in terms of homeschooling. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we did homeschooling the old fashioned way. You know, we were at home all day kind of in, in that sort of environment. And so my parents had a caretaker around the house to just kind of, you know, give them some relief from time to time. And in September of 1999, just after my eighth birthday, our family's caregiver began sexually abusing me. Um, that went on for a very long time. You know, you mentioned the decade in there and, and primarily I think what allowed that to go on for so long was the inability that I had to really understand, identify, call it out for what it was, you know, grasp it on any level. And and that's really what allowed it to go on for, for such a long time. Uh, really kind of jumping through the story over here in February of 2016, I was really struggling on a great number of levels as so many of us that have been 
through these experiences know, you know, they come collecting their dues at some point, whether you're ready to pay up or not, they're there to, uh, to, to demand their calling. And um, my parents and my wife, who obviously at that point had no idea about what had actually happened, really pushed me strongly to go to therapy and just kind of find out what was, what was bugging me, what was not allowing me to function on a normal sort of level, which I did. And I went to therapy in February of 2016. And, you know, I told the therapist that I thought I'd been sexually abused as a kid. And I needed to unpack what that meant and really kind of come to terms with that and understand that and, and, and do something with that. And I'm very grateful that I have, have still still today an incredible therapist who you know, gave me the ability to to go down that road and to figure out what that means and how to move forward from that. Um, and as the conversation evolved, one of the areas where it went was reporting. Um, you know, was, was that something which I was up for? What would that look like? You know, it was, it was just this unknown landscape that had so many potential pitfalls and landmines. And like, you know, there, there were so many areas where things could just go off the rails. And we kicked it around for a while. We kicked it around for about two years until I finally decided to, to do it. There were a number of things that happened along the way. And uh, in January of 2018, I picked up the phone and I cold called the non-emergency number for the Salt Lake City Police Department and spoke to the nice lady who answered the phone and told her my story. And, you know, they got me in with a detective from sex crimes. And um, one thing led to another. An investigation ensued. Um, you know, we'll talk about that a little bit more in this conversation. And in February of 19, I had to testify at a preliminary hearing for the first time. And I did. And, you know, at that point, instead of kind of hoping that the story wouldn't come out, you know, in some sort of leaked fashion, I decided to stand up and tell it to the world. And I did. I, I came out publicly that same day, the day that I testified. And it's kind of been you know, this remarkable, incredible, exhilarating, crazy roller coaster ride ever since. And here we are today. And it's given me the opportunity to be an advocate in my community, to speak out about it, to, you know, play some very important roles and, and, and try to help those that have gone through what I have gone through to make sure that they can hopefully avoid some of the torment that, that I had to experience due to the prolonged nature of not being able to talk about it. I have the chills because there's so much that you said that's so parallel to what I went through all that, all those years of abuse, being an adult, right? At 18 years old and not being able to recognize it for what it was. That's so common when things like this start happening to you before your brain is even fully formed and you barely know how to tie your shoes. You don't get those red flags necessarily. And then, you know, having that moment where you have to decide, okay, I'm either going to go in and I'm going to do this. Um, and I'm going to put my face and my voice behind us, which is not for everyone. And that's totally fine. Um, or I'm going to, to carry this and right. What you've said about our bodies and our psyches, a lot of times don't let us carry it for our whole lives, there comes that tipping point where things start to go downhill. Right. And whether that looks like, you know, anxiety, depression, you know, um, eating disorders, chemical dependencies, you know, whatever that looks like to the listeners, that's normal when you were traumatized as a child and your psyche has kind of buried that. Right. You know, it's, it's so true. You say that. And I think it's something which really needs to get out there and be put on 
people's radar. Uh, just yesterday, I had a conversation with a young woman who disclosed to her husband that she had been abused really, really, in you know, really horrible fashion as a kid. And and she tells him that, you know, she, she finally worked up the courage to tell her husband about it. And she says when she finished telling her husband about it, she just threw up all over the place. And and she felt so ashamed and so just, you know, it, it was it was a demoralizing enough experience as it is. And then she had to go through that. And I, I really wanted to share with her, you know, our bodies have become so trained to keep so much in over so many years. We don't even realize that. And we don't even realize that there comes a point where our, our bodies have developed so many unhealthy mechanisms and so many unhealthy systems that our, our bodies are just kind of reacting on their own. And, 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 you know, to be totally honest, it's totally normal that your body had that sort of reaction. You were, you were sharing this information. It was a highly, you know, your, your, your awarenesses were at a super, raised fashion everything is kind of firing just like on autopilot and and your body is just doing things the defenses that it's built up are working against itself and you know it's so normal and i think that for so many survivors of sexual violence or child abuse whatever it is you know beyond the shame they've been made to carry about their experiences, it, it starts to get really layered. So then they develop anxiety or depression, or like you mentioned, an eating disorder, a substance abuse, or other sorts of dangerous behaviors. And that only compounds the trauma they've already been through. So now they're carrying the secret of the abuse they've been through. And, and also now they're feeling ashamed because of these different dependencies, dependencies or unhealthy behaviors or whatever it is that they're going through in the moment. And it's just adding complex layer on top of complex layer and more and more shame to the equation where what we really want to do is, is normalize and destigmatize de and take the conversation down a notch. And instead it just piles up and piles up. And I think that's the most important thing that survivors can understand is look, you know, however you're processing this information, that's okay. You know, obviously having an eating disorder is not okay. Having a chemical dependency is not okay, but it's normal. It is, it is plausible that your body has done that. And, and there is hope for you. There's no reason for you to carry that shame on top of everything you've been through. We can help you get through that. And we can help you get deeper than that through the experiences that you've been through, but you really need to try and let go of that shame. Yes. Amen. That's probably the best explanation of damages or the damage that that childhood trauma can do that I've ever heard. And, and I'll note to the audience, you know, we're talking about sexual abuse, but any kind of abuse you suffered as a child, right? Any kind of physical abuse or, you know, your parents were never home and you had to raise yourself or you were left or you were right. Any, anything that left an imprint, a trauma imprint on on our psyche as a child is going to have, like you said, the layers upon layers upon layers of, you know, of, of damage. Um, that was really, really well put. So you're an adult, this all builds up to this moment. You're in therapy. You're going, what do I do? Do I report? Do I not report? Um, did it feel to you, at that point, like this huge thing? Had you worked through it in therapy where you felt like, okay, I'm ready for this? What did that feel like to decide? And, and listen, you didn't have the world behind you, right? In, in the Nasser case, 
we did. Um, it was one of us and then the next and then the next. And we were together in doing this. Um, we still got shamed and called names and treated, you know, in all sorts of ways, but we had each other. How did you, especially sort of a pillar of your community, the rabbi, how did you do this? So I appreciate that. I think for me, there were really kind of two dueling themes at play, which ultimately, whichever one was going to win out was going to really dictate the course of action, as it were. On one hand, for me, what was most important, and, and, and I think it's vitally important that I you know, say this and, and share this, because I think a lot of people hear my story and they think that my attitude is, you know, everyone who goes through this must report, must report, must report, you know, going through the police and, 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 and prosecutors and trials is the only way to go. Heavens no, heavens no. And I, you know, completely understand that that's a path which is not possible, not feasible, not the best option for a lot of people. And, and frankly, it's not really what I was looking for at the outset either. You know, for me, what was such a powerful component of my experiences was the fact that at every turn, my abuser tried to rationalize what she was doing by, you know, this is, this is helping you, you know, this is teaching you to become a better husband one day. And there was this mantra of like, you know, I am your friend, I am your caregiver, I am trying to help you, I am trying to enhance your life in some way, shape or form. When I went through therapy and realized that, you know, oh, that was not the case, for me, what was most important was accountability. You know, the same person that had repeated this to me for, for 10 years, you know, how she was just embellishing my life, you know, out of the goodness and kindness of her heart. I wanted her to look me in the eye and say, yes, I hurt you. I robbed you of your innocence. I took away your childhood because I am sick. You know, I've got a real problem. And I, and I did that to you. That's really what I was looking for. And for me, that accountability and that ownership was, you know, really all I wanted out of this whole thing. At the same time, I also had to grapple with the fact that, like you said, Sarah, who does this in my community? You know, no, we don't talk about these things. We don't come forward about these things. Um, and yeah, it would kind of be this this one man crusade and, and, and doing, you know, doing this thing that didn't really seem feasible, possible or practical. And you know, was I was I willing to take that choice and kind of stand on that island by myself? And which was why throughout the beginning of the justice process, I made it abundantly clear to detectives, police officers, prosecutors, whoever I was coming to contact with, that I was going to pursue this to the extent that they could keep me private, to the extent that they could protect my confidentiality. And if there would come a time where there would be a fork in the road between, you know, you may have to step into the public or this case, you know, goes up in smoke, the case will go up in smoke, you know, 10 times out of 10. And, and I'm abundantly clear on that. And, and that's how the process started. And, and, and they were all very supportive of that. I think what happened was that as the process evolved, and I began to tell people individually before I went public. So there was about a year from when the investigation started from when I called the police until I went public. Over that year, you know, my abuser was arrested on suspicion of 130 counts of child sexual abuse, you know, that the, the case was evolving and I was missing work to go to court dates. And I was, you know, I, I was involved in the case and I had to start telling people that. As I started telling individuals, I realized that I'm not on an island. And that really isolated feeling that I had felt was inaccurate, wasn't true. You know, people respected me for what I was doing. People 
thought it was brave. People did not look down on me. People did not shun that behavior. And I think that it was those reactions and those behaviors that really gave me the push to when it came to that fork in the road where it was, okay, you know, you've got to testify at the preliminary hearing or, you know, we don't have much of a case. And there was that, you know, strong chance that if that were to happen, somehow the story would leak out with, you know, all the identities involved that I got in front of it. And instead of, you know, waiting for it to happen kind of by accident, I said, you know, no, I'm, I'm not ashamed of this. I will get up and I will tell my story. And if somebody has a problem with that, they can take a number. But, um, but I think that it really was developing that ability to find my voice, tell my story and see that the world didn't react to it in the way that I had anticipated that really gave me the push to go forward. I love that. And in so many of our fears, aren't real. (laughs) So many of our fears are in our heads, right? And we build things up sometimes and, and we have to leave space for the fact that we could be wrong and, and we could be met in a different way than, than we anticipated. Um, something I, I heard you say really was, was awesome in another one of your interviews. And I think it's a theme in life in general, the way we get anywhere in the world is together, right? We stand on somebody else's shoulders who had been there before who, you know, felt the fear and did it anyway, who jumped off the cliff and found out they could fly, um, or not. Right. But we, we, we do life together. And it is much as we feel sometimes like the only one where we feel alone in any aspects of our lives, we really truly aren't. And you said in an interview, you sat there and you watched every girl walk up to that podium in the Nasser trial, one after the next, after the next, after the next. And you saw, you know, our, our friend, Allie Raisman, you know, have the courage to do it. You saw this one, have the courage to do it. And, and you didn't come forward because of that, but it was precedent for you to say, okay, you know, other people have done this. Maybe I can do it too. And and I want our listeners to know just as a theme, right? Whatever you're most afraid of in life, somebody else has already been there, done that. And guess what? They survived. And maybe even it was the best decision they've ever made in their whole lives, right? Can you say a little bit about, about that? Yeah, totally. So in a very crazy, ironic way, I think my story is tied to you know your guys' bravery and, and the entire Nasser saga in actually in two parts. And I've never really spoken about the second part you know, until, until today. So yeah, you know, uh, the sentencing was in January of 2018. I think it was like January 16th to the 19th. And I was watching. I was watching, you know, Ali was a gold medalist. Um, I had been in London during the London games. I didn't actually get to go to, to the Olympics, but, you know, I was aware of everything that was going on there. And I think for me, this was literally, you know, reporting was really on my mind at that time. I was really struggling with it, wrestling with it. And for me, it boiled down to one question, you know, is is this going to be me? You know, I, I have such a full life to lead and, and, you know, let's be frank. I'm I'm an Orthodox rabbi in Salt Lake City. I, I dress the part and I get enough kind of funny looks when I walk down the street <laughs> here in Salt Lake City. And so, you know, am I really going to step into this role, which will likely, maybe, perhaps, probably, you know, haunt me for the rest of my days and, and it will be a label that I can never shirk? Is that 
really what I want to do. I was, you know, 26 years old. I was, I had my whole life in front of me and, and I, I, I wasn't ready to kind of just leave all that to step into this role. And, and then you watch people, 156 young women get up on national TV. You watch gold medalists get up on national TV and, and are okay with that. And, and, and really kind of give off that attitude of, yeah, yeah, this is me. I am so comfortable in my own skin that if anybody has a problem with it, that's really, really not my department anymore. And, and I'm going to say who I am and what I am, and I'm going to stand proudly in the limelight and say my bit. And, and I could care less what anybody else has to say about that. And I reported 12 days later. I called the police oh. 12 days after the sentence. Oh, I have the chills. <laughs> yeah, well, so, so that was kind of, that was the first, the first part of it. What, what really, you know, what really, um, what people don't know about, which really kind of played a very, very pivotal role. So my abuser was arrested, um, you know, the court proceedings began. And I mentioned earlier that I testified for the first time in February of 2019. Uh, what most people don't know is I was actually scheduled to testify the first time in July of 2018. So uh, my abuser was arrested, you know, the charges were filed and the preliminary hearing was set for July 17th, 2018. And I was going to testify for the first time. And, and that was going to be that July 17th was, was a Tuesday, Monday afternoon. I got an email from the prosecutor. Um, you know, I had already been in right before the weekend to witness prep and like, you know, I wasn't eating, I wasn't sleeping. The next day I was going to get up in a courtroom and, and, and testify and have to point her out in the courtroom and, and everything that comes with that whole experience. Monday afternoon, 18 hours before I'm scheduled to testify, I get an email from the prosecutor. And the email says, um, the hearing tomorrow has been stayed. The proceedings have been stayed. Um, the defendant has filed a motion to find her incompetent. Uh, so just kind of for those who are not in the legal community, you know, I, I made the mistake of associating that with insanity. So a lot of us are familiar with the reality that someone pleads not guilty by reason of insanity. So when I committed the crime, I was out of my mind. I was just not in a good headspace. So I'm not guilty because in that moment, I was, I was insane. Incompetency is something different. And, and in my opinion, in this case, was something far more, you know, just horrible that you know, they were going to try to pull that. Incompetency basically means is that my abuser was saying that at this moment, today, I am not competent to get up in a courtroom and defend myself. So if I go into the courtroom, I can't identify the judge. I can't identify who's my attorney and who's the prosecutor. If something is said in the courtroom, I won't be able to rebut it. I won't be able to provide a defense for myself. And what was so horrific for me about that is that this is July of 2018. In March of 2018, as part of the police investigation, the police had set up a pretextual phone call between me and my abuser. And we spoke for 45 minutes on a recorded line in which she copped to everything, everything that, that I had alleged in my, in my interview with the SLCPD, which is why she was arrested a couple of days later. And we had had a completely lucid conversation. You know, let's not pull any punches. She was in, in just fine of a state of mind. And four months later, her attorney's getting up and saying, oh, scrap this whole thing. She doesn't need to, you know, face justice because she's incompetent to, to, to assist in her own, own defense. And so that was one of the darker periods of my life. And I, I remember going to the prosecutor's office the next day. And, and instead of being in court testifying, I'm going to the prosecutor's office and she's talking about, you know, this could take six to 12 months and she's going to have to be evaluated. And a lot of times this doesn't end quickly and she might have to be, you know, go to the state hospital. And it was at that moment where I really realized 
what people mean when they say that the, you know, pursuing justice at times is as traumatizing as the experiences themselves, because I spoke to her on the phone three months ago. Don't tell me she's incompetent. And I looked at the prosecutor and said, you you heard the recording. Give me a break. And she says, look, you know, I don't think they're going to succeed, but they're going to try and they're going to, you know, they're going to pull this stuff. And I went home and I was, I was in a dark, dark place. I was, I was not, not taking it very well. The next day were the ESPYs, oh! July 18th, 2018. Um, and I had tuned into the ESPYs because a local guy, Donovan Mitchell, was up for an award. And, you know, at that time, I'm just, you know, just just trying to do anything to take my mind off the pain I'm in. And so, you know, I would have watched anything on my iPad that night to just kind of get out of that headspace. And so Donovan Mitchell wins an ESPY. And then there's the Arthur Ashe Award for Courage. And who is the recipient of the Arthur Ashe Award for Courage? All of the survivors, and I will never forget this as long as I live. I forget who was presenting, but you know, it was some actress, and she said, you know, the recipients of the Arthur Ashe Award for Courage. And then there is just a flock, a flock of young women getting up on the stage, all of the survivors of the Nasser case. And like you watch the first, I don't know, 20, 30, 40, you're like, wow, there's a lot. And then the camera just goes to a wide shot and they just keep on coming mm-hmm. from from every side of the theater and there's dozens there's hundreds of young women up there on the stage and i remember just getting the chills and i'm like oh my god you know you really begin to realize the depth of what had happened in that case and i had been you know in the environment long enough to know that for every girl up there on stage there's, there's at least five more at home you know who aren't speaking out about it and, you know, Sarah, there was you and there was Ali receiving, you know, receiving the ESPY. And I swore to myself that night that, you know, I was not going to give in. I was not uh. going to, you know, bend over and just kind of, you know, throw up the white flag. I'm like, oh, what the heck? This is not worth my aggravation. I was going to fight to the end because you see, you see people who, you know, and, and, and I knew that there was a lot of opposition in the beginning of, of getting justice in the Nasser case. And, and you fight and you fight and you fight with every drop of blood, sweat and tears that you have inside you. And ultimately you will get the justice that you seek. And that night I swore to myself that, you know, come hell or high water, whatever it was going to take to, to get to the finish line, I would, I would make it to the end. You know, I would not let this let this process, you know, outdo me or, or, or drain me of that energy. I was going to fight for it. And I did. Yeah, I did. The, the prelim ended up being about seven months later. And there was a trial in November of 2019. And, you know, a jury found my, my abuser guilty of all seven felonies that she was charged with. And she's doing 25 to life. But I, I think that the, the, the courage that I felt on that night and the inspiration that I felt on that night really really sustained me for a long time on a night when I so badly needed it. And I think for me, that's really what this all boils down to. You know, you make reference to the jumping off the cliff and learning you can fly. As human beings, we never really understand the long-term impact of our actions for the good. And we never really understand the bravery that we display, what that means for other people. You know, I can't imagine that when Ali Reisman got up in a courtroom in Michigan in, in January of 2018, she thought that there was a rabbi in Salt Lake City watching her testimony who was going to call the police a week and a half later because of that. And I can't imagine, Sarah, that when you stood on the stage that night in, I guess, in L.A. to receive an SV, you know, you, you, there, were, there were people watching that 
at that moment, hearing those remarks, seeing that solidarity, we're drawing courage from that show of support and that show of strength to fight on in their own lives. And the reality is that that happens. And that's how the world works. And that's how, you know, the globe keeps on spinning and the bravery that we put forth in our own lives is there for others. And we only hope that they can pay that forward and they'll be brave and somebody else will learn, will learn from that and, and so on and so forth. It's, it's what makes the world keep on spinning. Oh, you guys, I'm sitting over here literally like, I don't know if I should start weeping or what, because that moment was the first time I ever spoke publicly right on that stage. I was Jane Doe. I was known as victim 125. And when they came to me about accepting that award, I had a decision to make. And I went through all the same stuff that you did. I don't always want to be known in this way. And this isn't my identity, my full identity. I'm, I have a career. I have a kid. But they said to me, Sarah, this award is not about being a victim and about abuse. This award is about courage. And I was like, sold, I'll do it. And so I came forward and put my face behind my voice for the first time that night on that stage. And to hear that that then touched you and, and touched, you know, I've heard from so many others. It's in your story, you're out there now and you're telling your story. I can't even imagine just within your very own community, how many lives you've changed and how many lives you've saved. And then that person pays it forward and that person pays it forward. And, and that is how all of us are leaving the world better than how we found it. Right. And, oh, that is just, that's incredible to hear the parallels. It, it was always meant to happen that way, you know, and that's something I've always, um, said about people say, oh, you know, if they start to feel sorry for you or, oh, you went through all of this hard stuff and it's like, don't feel sorry for me because it was always meant to happen this way because look at me now, look at how we together can have this conversation that's going to be shared and listened to by people that we'll never meet, right? That will be better off in some way, shape or form um, because you're having the courage to do, to do this based on what others, you know, had the courage to do for you. And that, that's beautiful. That is beautiful. I appreciate that. And, and, and I agree with that. You know, we know, especially when you are involved in this sort of work and you, you see generational trauma and, and you really begin to, to understand how, you know, hurt people hurt people. And, and that's such a powerful reality, especially oh. in the world of sexual violence and the world of child abuse. You know, you literally, you, you pull on the thread and you see generations going back, you know, this one hurt that one who then in turn hurt the next one who then in turn hurt the next one. And you see it pile up over decades, over generations. And I firmly believe that if that's the case, when it comes to pain, you know, healed people heal people. And, and, and if you have the opportunity to stop that, that cycle of violence and, and to kind of be the one to, you know, to, to, to be the change and then, and then pass that on to others. I was very fortunate when my abuser was sentenced to, to read my own impact statement. And, you know, at, at that point, it was pretty much a done deal. You know, what, what the sentence was going to be, you know, the Utah sentencing guidelines make it pretty, pretty definitive, you know, what, what was going to happen to her. And so I really wanted to use out my opportunity to read a statement in the courtroom, not so much to ask the judge, you know, to hand down 
sentence X or Y or Z because it was pretty much inevitable what was going to happen, but to really kind of address my abuser. And I said to her in the corner that day, I said, you know, I have no doubt at a point in life you were deeply hurt by somebody else, you know, and, and we had always anticipated that was going to kind of be a defense that, that, you know, her attorneys would put on, you know, my abuser comes from the South Pacific Islands where we know there's a lot of, you know, sexualizing children at a very, very young age, especially young women. And we kind of anticipated that was going to be the narrative. And, and I believe that to be true. I, I believe that my abuser yeah. was harmed deeply at a young age, which is why all this happens. And I turned to her and I said, you know, I, I really believe that you were hurt deeply at a young age. And, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry that that was the case. But here's the difference between me and you is that you won't acknowledge that you won't you won't cop to that and instead of doing that the only alternative if you're not going to do that is hurting somebody else and and I've made the decision to I will be the buck where it stops you know that cycle of violence stops with me and and I'm acknowledging what happened to me and I'm deciding to to instead of paying violence forward to pay healing forward and I, I think that's all we can do in this world. It really, really is all we can do to, to leave the world a little better than the way we found it is to be the light that somebody else was for us, to be that inspiration that somebody else was for us, to try in a small way to be that for somebody else. And, and you hope that it keeps on going. Oh, I just wrote that down, you guys. Healed people heal people. That is the gold nugget that I'm getting from this conversation today. Hurt people hurt people healed people heal people. So wherever you are on your journey, how are you showing up in your life now? Right. And it it doesn't have to just be, you know, people who were harmed as kids, but healed people heal people. Who are you? How are you showing up in your community, in your family, at your kid's school? Are you that light? Are you that healed person? And we both know healing is a journey, but are we doing the things to take care of ourselves, of our souls, of our psyches, of our bodies, of our minds, of our spirits, of all the things in order to be that healed person healing others? And I think that is such a beautiful place to sort of leave this conversation on What else, is there anything else we should take forward from what you've been through? Because I always say what we went through as kids was not in vain. We have taken it and we are doing good with it. And you are such a beautiful, inspiring example of that. If there's anything else our audience should know about what they they should take forward from having met you today, is there anything else you want to add? Thank you, Sarah. That's very kind of you. I guess I'd leave you with this. You know, we're we're recording this on September 10th. Uh, tomorrow is going to be 20 years since 9-11. Um, and yesterday I participated in a panel of faith leaders here on the radio. And we talked about, you know, how do we deal with tragedy, with, you know, pain and suffering in our communities? I wasn't a rabbi on 9-11. I was 10 years old on 9-11. Uh, and so I didn't have people coming to me for counseling. But, you know, when we experience tragedy, when we experience suffering, be it on a personal level, on a larger level, you know, what, what do we do about that? And, you know, for me, obviously, it's, it's a little bit of a pertinent conversation because of what I've been through. But I, I shared with my colleagues and I shared with the listeners yesterday that it's important that we not get caught up in the answers and we really get caught up instead in some form of purpose. You know, as a, as a person of faith, 
I have no idea why, you know, God, a loving higher power, however you choose to refer to, to what goes on upstairs, why these things happen to me on, on their watch. Um, and, and frankly, to be honest, I never will. There will never come a day where I'll be given to understand why humans harm each other this way, why people go through pain and suffering. The inability that I have to answer that question does not and should not and cannot hold me back in any way from finding purpose in everything that I have been through from all of my experiences to make the world a better place. And I, and I don't think that's limited to the child sexual abuse community. I think that's, that's, you know, spreads very broadly to anybody who has been through any sort of adversity. And I think it's, you know, going through adversity is a pretty common human experience. We can all relate to that. Whatever we have been through, we will usually never figure out why it had to happen the way it did, why we were harmed or hurt or, or, or broken in some way. That should never deter us from figuring out what we can do moving forward to leave the world better than the way we found it and to change the world in a certain way through specifically through the adversity that we went through, through the experiences that we went through to use those very unique circumstances to make the world a better place. There you have it. My heart is so full. Thank you so much, Rabbi of Remy Zippel. Our paths will continue to cross and cross and cross and cross. I'm sure of that. It, it is so wonderful to get to spend this time with you. You guys, listeners, we have done it again. If Rabbi Zippel has touched just one life today, we here at Bar Fights did our job. And I know for a fact that he touched lives today. And I know for a fact that he saved lives today. If you guys are enjoying our show, do us the favor of sharing it with your friends and with your loved ones, because that is the greatest gift you can give me. That is the greatest gift you can give our guests. And that is the greatest gift you can give the people with whom you share this show. Again, we are here to inform, here to inspire, keep coming back. The guests are magical on this show, and I'm humbled every single time I get to do another episode. Until next time, you guys. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Bar Fights with attorney Sarah Klein, taking on issues that matter. Please check out our website at barfightspodcast.com, Instagram at barfightspodcast, or Twitter at barfights underscore pod for the latest show updates and archives.